Welcome to Heard at Heritage. Heard at Heritage features cutting-edge analysis and thought from leading experts in and across the conservative movement, as well as premier events and programming from the Heritage Foundation here in the heart of Washington, D.C., brought straight to you. Ladies and gentlemen, welcome to our program, the NATO Secretary General on Modern Needs of the Alliance 75 Years After Its Founding. Please welcome Heritage President Dr. Kevin Roberts. Thanks, good morning, and welcome all of you here in the audience and those of you who joined online. Many of you, especially our friends from the media, may be curious why, of all places in our nation's capital, the Heritage Foundation would set the stage for today's honored guest, our friend, NATO Secretary General Jen Stoltenberg. At Heritage, as you know, we've always prided ourselves on our pursuit of conservatism, those policies and ideas rooted in self-governance and forged through rigorous research and internal debate that allow our country to be a shining city on a hill. We firmly believe in a powerful U.S. military and that American leadership is essential for human flourishing around the world. But our great nation state is, frankly, on the brink of decline, and so are many of our allies. As a historian, I hope we're living in a bad dream as age-old bad actors again rear their ugly heads. Russia, Iran, and Islamic terrorist organizations fester while the rising threat of the Chinese Communist Party goes wholly unchecked. Our latest Heritage Index of Military Strength, rating our military as weak, is evidence that America is ill-prepared to fight in multiple theaters of conflict. And yet on the other side of years of chaos was a decade of American greatness. It is in this spirit that our friend Mr. Stoltenberg joins us today. NATO has indeed been the bedrock of transatlantic security cooperation ever since its creation in 1949 and has done more to promote peace, security, and democracy in Europe than any other institution. NATO's strength lies in the commitment of its member states. For years, however, many U.S. NATO allies failed to live up to their Article III commitments in the North Atlantic Treaty to, quote, maintain and develop their individual and collective capacity to resist armed attack. Today, only 12 of 31 NATO countries meet the essential 2% GDP defense spending requirement necessary to fulfill that obligation. Germany and France, in particular, conspicuously lag behind. This is unacceptable to the American people, and our friend the Secretary General knows this and agrees. It's time for our NATO allies to step up to the plate so that NATO, this great and noble organization of security and peace, can flourish. While Heritage strongly supports the NATO alliance and its mission, given this state of affairs, it's crucial to address the elephant in the room, the elephant in Washington, Ukraine. While we strongly condemn Vladimir Putin's barbaric invasion of Ukraine and certainly want the Ukrainians to win, our constitutional and moral obligations compel us to prioritize the interests of the American people. We've said before, that we will not support further funding for Ukraine unless it is military only, matched sufficiently by European nations, is transparent and accountable, and follows a clearly articulated strategy for victory. And today, I want to be crystal clear, especially for our friends in the media. Heritage will not now, nor ever, support putting a foreign nation's border ahead of our own. 
The United States must defend and secure its own border and sovereignty, both of which are threatened as we sit here by disordered policies affecting not just our border states and counties, but every city in this great country. An open borders America is dangerous both for us and for NATO. Since President Biden took office, over 10 million illegal aliens have entered our nation, including 120,364 Chinese nationals, and just in the last five months, 50 criminals on the terror watch list. While not the subject of today's program, the leaked details of a so-called border deal out of the Senate point to more disordered priorities in Washington games. So, until the border is at least as secure as it was a few years ago, which President Biden can do today with existing authority, we can't support sending more American taxpayer dollars overseas to secure someone else's border. And while at Heritage, we do recognize Russia as a major adversary and national security threat, by far the greatest threat to post-World War II America, even more so than the Soviet Union ever was, is the Chinese Communist Party. The United States must balance these threats and does not have the luxury of ignoring the Pacific, let alone the Middle East, to focus exclusively on the Atlantic. Going forward to NATO's centennial in 2049, a celebration we'd eagerly applaud, we need to work together to shoulder these burdens evenly. For nearly eight decades, NATO has indeed safeguarded the peace and prosperity of the transatlantic community. This vital mission should continue. We look forward to discussing the role of NATO in the modern era and what needs to be done collectively to address rising global threats. In that spirit, today I am truly honored to welcome NATO Secretary General Jen Stoltenberg to Heritage. Mr. Stoltenberg, who assumed his role in October 2014, brings with him a most distinguished international and domestic career. As a former Prime Minister of Norway, he has been a strong supporter of greater transatlantic cooperation. Under his leadership, NATO has responded to a more challenging security environment, which I've outlined, by implementing the biggest reinforcement of its collective defense since the Cold War, increasing the readiness of its forces, and deploying combat troops in the eastern part of the alliance. At Heritage, we deeply value this forum for scholarly endeavors, vigorous debates, often missing in Washington, and the critical conversations that shape our world. As we navigate the path toward a prosperous and peaceful future, let that conversation continue here today with Mr. Stoltenberg's address. Please join me in welcoming to the stage. Thank you, Dr. Roberts there, Kevin. Um, good morning, all. It is great to be back in Washington and a pleasure to speak at the Heritage Foundation. You seek to advance the interest of American citizens and stand up for ideas that strengthen America and the fundamental values that underpin this great democratic nation. Freedom, opportunity, and prosperity. Today, these values are under attack by malign foreign actors seeking to undermine them. They are threatening our free world. They are openly contesting American power and not just America. They are trying to trample over the global rules that keep us all safe.
These are dangerous times. China is modernizing its military and uh, developing new uh, weapons without any transparency or any limitation. It is trading unfairly, buying up critical infrastructure, bullying its neighbors, not least Taiwan, and seeking to dominate the South China Sea. While China is the most serious long-term challenge, Russia is the most immediate one. Putin has brought war back to Europe on a scale not seen since the Second World War and is developing new strategic weapons to threaten the United States and its allies. His war is not just about controlling Ukraine. It is about re-establishing Russia's sphere of influence and shaping alternative world order. Where U.S. power is diminished, NATO is divided, and smaller democracies are forced to kneel. Other authoritarian regimes in Iran and North Korea are also expanding their aggressive behavior. Tehran is backing terrorists and militias that are attacking ships in the Red Sea. And American, and American military bases in the Middle East. Just this week, we saw the, the tragic consequences of the attack in Jordan. Pyongyang continues to test missiles that could reach South Korea and Japan, as well as the United States. China, Russia, Iran, and North Korea are increasingly aligned. Together, they subvert sanctions and pressure, weaken the U.S. dollar-based international financial system, fuel Russian war in Europe, and exploit challenges to our societies, such as terrorism, disruptive technologies, or migration. In these dangerous times, we must stand strong against any regime that seeks to undermine us. To do so, we must do three things. First, we must ensure robust deterrence, not to start wars, but to prevent them and preserve peace. Any sign of wavering or weakness on our part will invite challenges from those who wish us harm. That is why NATO has implemented the most robust collective defense since the Cold War. We have more forces at higher readiness and more capabilities to protect our people and our territory. We need to remain decisive and strong in our support to Ukraine. Make no mistake, that is where we are being tested right now. Ukraine must prevail, and it can, but it needs our continued help. And let me recognize the leading role of the United State, uh, States in supporting Ukraine, not least in providing essential military aid. At the same time, we should acknowledge that European allies and Canada 
also provide significant support to Ukraine. What they support, uh, what they provide in terms of military, financial and humanitarian aid actually exceeds what the U.S. is providing. Since the outbreak of the war, the United States has provided around 75 billion U.S. dollars. Other allies and partners have provided over 100 billion dollars. And measured as share of GDP, most allies provide more than the United States. In addition, European allies host 6 million Ukrainian refugees. European allies were the first to provide tanks and long-range missiles to Ukraine, the first to provide fighter aircraft, and the first to train thousands of Ukrainian soldiers. Supporting Ukraine is not charity. It is an investment in our own security. The United States has spent a small fraction of its annual military budget to aid Ukraine. With that, Ukraine has managed to destroy a substantial part of Russia's combat capacity. And again, supporting Ukraine is in America's own interest. If we cannot stop Russia's cycle of aggression in Europe, others will learn the lesson that using force against America's interest works. The price for our security will go up. China is watching closely and supporting Putin. Let's remember China and Russia are partners. Putin and Xi have signed an agreement of limitless partnership. Beijing has failed to condemn Russia's invasion of Ukraine. It continues to spread Russian lies and to prop up the Russian economy. It is Ukraine today. Taiwan could be tomorrow. This brings me to my second point. We must organize ourselves for enduring competition with China. The US has been doing this for some time. You shifted your policy on China in 2017 under President Trump. And since then, NATO has gone a long way in helping European allies fully appreciate the challenges posed by China and respond to it. It is clear that we must eliminate harmful dependencies on critical Chinese raw materials and products. Europe uh, made the mistake to rely on Russian oil and gas. We cannot repeat that same mistake with China. Dependencies make us vulnerable. That is why we need uh, to protect our critical infrastructure, strategic materials and supply chains. We must not lose control of our ports, railways and telecommunications like 5G. And we must not export technology that can be used against us. Managing the China challenge is not something the US can do alone. And you don't have to. Through NATO, 
The US has the support of 31 allies and a vast network of partners, especially in the Indo-Pacific. NATO is working more closely than ever with Australia, Japan, New Zealand and South Korea. We are making our forces more interoperable so they can work seamlessly together. And we cooperate on issues of shared interest, including China. Together, we are much stronger. And now to my third and final point. We must invest in our defense. NATO will remain central to this effort. Over many years, the United States has criticized NATO allies for not spending enough on defense. Rightly so. And I commend the US leadership on this important issue. But things have changed. All allies have increased defense investments, adding an additional $450 billion. NATO allies have committed to spending at least 2% of the GDP on defense. And many are exceeding that target already. For example, this year Poland will spend more than 4%. No other ally spends more. With more money, we are boosting our defense industry. NATO creates a market for defense sales. Over the last two years, NATO allies have agreed to purchase $120 billion worth of weapons from uh, US defense companies including thousands of missiles to the UK, Finland and Lithuania, hundreds of Abrahams tanks to Poland and Romania, and hundreds of F-35 aircraft across many European allied nations, a total of 600 by 2030. From Arizona to Virginia, Florida to Washington state, American jobs depend on American sales to defense markets in Europe and Canada. What you produce keeps people safe. And what allies buy keeps American business strong. So NATO is a good deal for the United States. Ladies and gentlemen, the Heritage Foundation stands for the power of ideas that keep America strong. NATO is an incredibly powerful idea that advances U.S. interests and multiplies America's power. The U.S. alone represents a quarter of the world economy. But together with NATO allies, we represent half of the world's economic might and half of the world's military might. Together, we have world-class militaries, vast intelligence networks, more defense spending, and unique diplomatic leverage. More than an idea, NATO is a strong alliance, getting stronger and bigger. With new allies, Finland and soon Sweden, and more partnerships around the world. To NATO, the US has more friends and allies than any other power. China and Russia, has nothing like NATO. It is why they always try to undermine our unity. In times of 
growing competition and rivalry, NATO makes the US stronger and all of us safer. This year, we will celebrate NATO's 75th anniversary with a summit here in Washington in July. It will be an opportunity to send a powerful message of unity and resolve in this challenging century. Thank you so much. Thank you, Mr. Secretary General, for a, a very uh, compelling and engaging address. I look forward to following up on some of these topics with you. And welcome, everyone, to the Heritage Foundation. Um, I'm going to revert to one of my favorite habits, which is to tell a story about Donald Rumsfeld. Uh, and there's, there's always a Rumsfeld story for any topic, that, and I know them. Uh, but he was, of course, sec uh, ambassador to NATO in 1974. And it was an interesting choice for him because Nixon had just won, you know, this massive re-election. And the decision was made for him to become uh, NATO uh, ambassador. And the Washington Post published an article saying Rumsfeld's the dumbest man in Washington. Why would you leave the center of the universe and go off to Brussels? Uh, but he did. This was 73, actually. And then uh, over the summer of 74 had a very interesting experience with the alliance uh, as Watergate was breaking out here in Washington. And the Nixon presidency descended into paralysis. And the Washington Post published an article saying Rumsfeld's the smartest man in Washington. He got out. <laughs> uh, but what he experienced and what he talked about a great deal in terms of his interest in and value for NATO was the crisis in NATO in the summer of 74. Uh, when he was basically cut off from D.C. because everybody was focused internally on protecting the Nixon presidency. But in Europe, we had a massive crisis between uh, Turkey and Greece, resulting in Greece withdrawing from the NATO command uh, structure. And uh, then-Secretary General Lunds basically pleaded with Rumsfeld to go back to D.C. and come up with some kind of resolution to this crisis. And what he knew is if he went back to Washington, no one would talk to him about anything but Watergate. <laughs> so he stayed engaged in, in Brussels and, and always spoke very uh, admiringly about how the alliance functioned through that crisis and kept it from coming off the rails during a very dangerous time in the Cold War when a, a crisis in, in NATO would have been particularly uh, destructive. So my first question to you is, you know, with 75 years of, of this alliance, you know, what was forged in the, you know, sort of the ashes of World War II has emerged as you know, one of the most powerful alliances in history. Is there any accomplishment that you would point to uh, like that summer of 74 accomplishment that is not fully appreciated? First of all, I think actually NATO is quite well appreciated uh, and, uh, and more appreciated now than just a few years ago because uh, with a full-fledged war going on in Europe, uh, uh, with uh, uh, China becoming stronger uh, and stronger, uh, I think uh, more and more allies realize the value of standing together. It's as simple as that. that when we are together, we are stronger and safer. Uh, all of us, and that applies for Europe, but it also applies for uh, for the United States uh, and uh, and Canada, for North uh, America. 
so, 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 and I feel, and then also when you look at the opinion polls, there is actually strong support for NATO across Europe and in the United States. So, of course, there are things that are not as appreciated as they should, but uh, the, in general, I feel, <laughs> I feel welcomed all over the alliance. And, uh, and, uh, and, uh, and we see it also reflected in, in the fact that allies are investing more uh, uh, in defense. But on that uh, so a story from 1974 and, 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 and the crisis caused by, by, by the crisis in, in Cyprus, uh, I think it demonstrates why NATO is the most successful alliance in history. And NATO is the most successful alliance in history for two reasons. One uh, is that we have been able to change when the world changes. For 40 years, we deterred the Soviet Union. Then suddenly, the Soviet Union was not longer there. And people said NATO has to go out of business or out of area. And we went out of area and helped to end two brutal ethnic wars in the Balkans, in, in Bosnia and Herzegovina, and, uh, and, uh, and um, in, in, in Serbia or, or, or Kosovo. And then after 9-11, uh, NATO did something no one envisaged that we were going to do, and that was to be on the front line fighting terrorism and helping the United States. Um, and then after 2014, NATO has adapted again uh, uh, with more uh, focus on collective defense in Europe, the strongest reinforcement of collective defense. So the first reason why NATO is a success is that we are changing, and we will continue to change. The other reason why NATO is a success is that despite our differences, we are able to agree around the core task of NATO, and that is to protect all allies. Because we are now soon 32 allies from both sides of the Atlantic, with different history, different geography, different political parties in, in power, and it changes, and we disagree on many issues. And we have, you know, NATO was founded in 49, and then we had the Suez Crisis in 56. Uh, we had, uh, in the 67, we had uh, France, um, asking NATO to leave. Our headquarters were in, were in Paris, and we had to, to move to Brussels. Of course, that was a crisis. And then we had uh, 74, and we had uh, the Iraq war, and we had many differences. And we'll have them in the future, too, I promise. <laughs> uh, but despite all these, different, these differences, we have been able to deter every adversary and unite around the core task to protect each other. And, uh, because we realized that we, we realized that we are safer when we stand together. So uh, uh, that's the, that's the, that's in a way the key. That uh, realizing that we are different, we are uh, still able to protect and defend each other, not to provoke a war, but to prevent the war and uh, and preserve peace. And NATO has done that successfully for 75 years, and will continue to do so as long as we adapt to a changing world and as long as we are united despite our differences. And I'm actually going to push back a little bit on that one, uh, because in 2022, deterrence did fail. And I think the, you know, the challenge we have to NATO going forward is, you know, why did that deterrence fail? Uh, I think to your point about winning the Cold War and it being a good thing that NATO didn't go out of business after the Cold War because Russia didn't go out of business. And so that threat was still very much present and, as it turns out, gathering. You recently referred to the war in Ukraine as a battle of ammunition. And clearly, you know, we do have allies who have their stocks running dangerously low, and our ability to resupply is not what it should be. What would be your views going forward into the next 25 years of NATO as we approach the centennial about how we can build up that capacity? 
in, in Europe in a way that is interoperable with the United States uh, th so that we can present a greater uh, deterrence for Russia for any further ambitions uh, that Mr. Putin may have. And how quickly do you think that capacity can be built up? It's extremely important to, to build up that capacity of, uh, of our defense industries. But let me first briefly um, uh, respond to what you said about deterrence failed. I think we have to be very precise. NATO's deterrence is about Article 5, and that applies for NATO allies. That has never failed, except if you, also we have been, uh, there have been terrorist attacks, there have been cyber attacks, but there have not been any major military attack against any NATO ally. Uh, we will have cyber attacks. We may have terrorist attacks also in the future. Uh, uh, but the, the, the core responsibility for NATO to deter uh, military uh, uh, attacks, that deterrence has not failed. Uh, Ukraine is a partner, but Ukraine is not covered by Article 5. So I think it, it, we, should not, we should not confuse uh, those two uh, uh, things because then we are actually undermining the credibility of Article 5. Because if you say that Article 5 failed in 22, then we undermine the credibility of Article 5. Article 5 didn't fail in 22, also, uh, uh, when, when Russia invaded Ukraine. Because Article 5 and NATO's collective defense assurances uh, does not apply for Ukraine. So therefore, it cannot fail. Uh, that doesn't make the invasion of Ukraine less serious, but, but, but we should not confuse those two things. Uh, second, the war in Ukraine is more and more a war of attrition. And a war of attrition becomes a war of logistics. It's about producing the weapons, the ammunition, the spare parts, the maintenance needed to sustain uh, the war effort. And that uh, demonstrates uh, the need to produce ammunition, to, uh, to, to, because so far we have mainly digged uh, into our stocks to supply uh, Ukraine. That cannot continue. That, also that's not sustainable. So therefore, uh, we started actually uh, yeah, quite early into the war to work with the defense industry about how can we ramp up production. And, and it revealed some serious weaknesses that, that our defense industry on both sides of the Atlantic doesn't have the capacity needed to sustain uh, this type of war and even uh, less uh, big uh, uh, conflict between pair uh, uh, enemies. So, so the, the bad news is that we have seen some, uh, some, some, some serious gaps. The good news is that allies are now addressing them. The important, uh, and, and production is uh, gradually going up, uh, NATO is playing a key role in two or three ways. First is that we are aggregating demand. We are ensuring that allies, especially the smaller and medium-sized allies, are buying stuff together. Uh, this is helping to uh, reduce the unit cost or the cost per produced unit. The economy of scale is utilized by bigger contracts. Uh, and of course, it increases the market power of those who are buying. So we, we just last two weeks ago, we had uh, uh, some allies agreeing to buy 1,000 uh, Patriot interceptors. So it's such a big uh, investment that actually they are building a new uh, factory to deliver those uh, interceptors. Um, um, uh, in total, uh, NATO support and procurement agency just over the last six months have signed contracts worth $10 billion, partly to replenish NATO stocks, but partly also to enable allies to, con uh, to uh, continue to deliver support to, uh, to, uh, to Ukraine. The other important role NATO is playing is that we are setting the capability targets to the NATO defense planning process 
and we are setting the standards. And standards are extremely important because we have to ensure that weapons uh, ammunition is interoperable. This is part about 155 ammunition, but also you know that, that the different systems can talk to each other um, uh, and communicate in a, in a world of artificial intelligence and more and more advanced weapon systems. These has to be NATO standards uh, because we cannot not have different sets of standards for the same allies. Um, and, uh, and the good thing with that is that while having common standards, uh, we ensure interoperability, interchangeability, that we can work together on the battlefield, but also that we have an open defense market. And again, this is a huge advantage for the United States. I mentioned in my speech, 120 billion uh, in sales to European allies and Canada just over the last two years. Uh, and, and later on today, I'm going to Alabama to, to Pike County to, to, to um, Lockheed Martin there, where they are producing javelins. Jobs in the United States uh, support Ukraine uh, and, and paid by, by, by European allies. So this is a, NATO is a good deal for the United States. One thing I was struck by in your remarks is you raised one of my favorite topics, which is energy. And I think that how energy and how we're going to fuel the future has become a national security issue is something we might not have talked about 20 years ago. Uh, but with the extraordinary demands on energy and requirements uh, for energy to fuel uh, modern life and to fuel modern warfare, uh, I think we're, we're just sort of beginning to focus on that in the, in the early days of of the invasion of Ukraine, uh, a gentleman that's sometimes in the news here in Washington, uh, Senator Manchin, refused, referred to the Ukraine war as an energy war, which it, which it largely is. And I know in the summit in Vilnius uh, last summer, where they have a, a NATO energy center, that this issue came up. As we move into this new phase and we have these new requirements, uh, you know, given the United States new role as one of the world's great energy producers, given how uh, increased United States natural gas exports have been able to support Europe during the war. How do you see energy factoring, factoring into NATO strategy going forward? So energy and security is uh, closely linked. Um, and um, uh, the war in Ukraine demonstrated uh, how vulnerable we are if we are too dependent on um, a commodity from an authoritarian power. And um, this has been clearly communicated from the United States. Uh, uh, and I remember, for instance, President, uh, then President Trump uh, at different NATO summits clearly saying that we should not be dependent on Russian gas. Um, while the challenge was that many Europeans uh, said that, well, whether we buy gas from Europe or not is a commercial issue. It's not a political issue. But the reality is that to be so dependent on gas from uh, Russia is a, is a political issue. It's, it's, it's about our, our security. Uh, all European allies understand that now. Uh, because uh, uh, actually some months before the invasion of, uh, of Ukraine, Russia started to use gas as a tool, as a weapon, the weaponized energy, uh, to coerce NATO allies to not support Ukraine. Uh, then luckily, allies, uh, European allies, uh, decided to support Ukraine, but they paid a high price uh, uh, because the gas supplies from 
from Russia was cut off. Um, uh, the good news is that since then, European allies have been able to um, divert uh, uh, their supplies, uh, from not least from the United States, LNG, uh, but also from uh, the Middle East, uh, uh, liquid uh, natural, natural gas, but also from, from, uh, from, from Norway and some other uh, uh, countries that are now supplying more natural gas and energy to, uh, to, uh, to Europe. So, in short, energy is about security. Uh, uh, we need to uh, prevent any dependencies. One of the challenges we see is that some of those new energies, which I think actually have a, an important role to play, like solar, uh, the challenge is that a lot of the uh, materials we need uh, for the uh, sol sol solar panels are coming from China. So, of course, we should not replace one over-dependency on Russia with another on China. So we need to find ways to also uh, not uh, uh, go into the same trap once again. No, that, that's a critical issue. And one of our uh, key projects this year at, at, in the Davis Institute is a project called Chinese Handcuffs, which is on precisely that topic, that it, are, we, are we trading one dangerous dependency for another? And for the United States, if we walk into that trap, we would be giving up our ability to you know, surge energy to partners and allies of our own are from our own resources, rather, and that so that gives me a convenient pivot point uh, to my next question, which you also raised in your in your remarks, which is how we as NATO are going to confront China. That this is becoming clear; it is the generational uh, challenge we will face. They are resolutely hostile, um, resolutely opposed to the kind of rules that we have laid out for everything from trade. Uh, to arms control and, you know, shackling ourselves by rules that they won't follow, I, you know, is not going to be a successful strategy. So even as we have to continue to confront Russia, and as you pointed out, in many ways the Russian and Chinese problem sets are morphing into one, uh, how, can, how can NATO uh, become more, more flexible into the Pacific? And do you see an opportunity to either create a sister alliance amongst the Pacific nations you mentioned, or how could we increase cooperation with them? This is extremely important because China is obviously the most uh, challenging challenge we, uh, we face. Uh, it's, it's, it's the biggest uh, long-term challenge uh, NATO allies uh, faces. And, uh, and therefore, uh, we need to address it. Uh, for decades, um, NATO didn't address China at all. Uh, in the strategic concept we agreed, uh, which is our basic paper in a way, which we agreed in Lisbon in 2010, China is not mentioned with a single word. Um, uh, then in 2019, we started. Uh, and, uh, and, and over the last years, uh, NATO has really put China on the agenda because uh, allies now fully recognize that China is about our security. Um, uh, again, the U.S. has been uh, showing leadership on this issue in, within the alliance. Um, NATO will remain a regional alliance of North America and Europe. NATO will not become a global alliance. But the North Atlantic region, North America and Europe, we face global threats and challenges, and we have to address them. Um, that's nothing new. Cyber is global. Uh, space is global, and terrorism is global. 
but of course, we also, as North America and Europe, we face the challenge that uh, Russia represents. Um, this is about their heavy investments in, uh, in modernizing their armed forces. It's about trying to control uh, our infrastructure. Uh, this is, in a way, China coming closer to us. We see them in Africa, we see them in the Arctic, we see them trying to control our uh, critical infrastructure. We had a very important discussion in Europe about 5G. In the beginning, again, uh, many allies said, this is a commercial issue. Uh, we said, no, no, 5G is, uh, yes, it's partly commercial, but it's also about our, our security. And actually, uh, allies realized and, uh, and, uh, and, uh, and saw the danger of being too dependent on Chinese supplies of 5G uh, uh, networks. Um, um, then, just to highlight what you also said, the idea to distinguish the challenge from Russia and the challenge from uh, uh, China is, is one way empty, or there, there, there is no meaning in that, because China and Russia are more and more aligned. Uh, what happens in Ukraine uh, matters for uh, Asia, and uh, what happens in Asia will matters for uh, for Europe. Uh, and, uh, and when we see how uh, how Russia and China are coming closer and closer, actually how how Russia is more and more dependent on China and is mortgaging its future to China, then the idea that we can just ad address Russia without at the same time uh, addressing China or vice versa. Uh, is, is, is meaningless. So we, cannot, we don't have the luxury of saying, no, we will only talk about China or only talk about Russia. This is one part of the same uh, challenge. Uh, they are partners without any limits. And therefore, uh, we think it is the main thing we need to invest now in the defense and defense. We need to invest in, 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 in technology. Uh, we need, uh, we need to, uh, to work on, uh, on, on resilience or critical infrastructure. All of this is relevant to address the, the challenge from China, and NATO allies are doing that. Um, uh, but we also need to work more closely with those Asia-Pacific partners. Um, uh, uh, I think there's a great potential for actually doing more. But this is an ongoing discussion within uh, allies. Uh, again, we will not become a global alliance, but we need to work with the global partners like the Asia-Pacific. Well, my last question, uh, which both you and Dr. Roberts touched on, is, is defense spending. And we have covered it, but it gives me an opportunity to bring this back to Rumsfeld. So mm. in the, in the interest fine. of symmetry, I will. Because yeah. uh, another uh, interesting aspect to his archives from the NATO period were the, uh, the cables he was writing home to then Secretary Kissinger about what he saw is, is a very dangerous culture of dependency that was growing in NATO in terms of reliance on uh, American security for Europe. And of course, what they were grappling with then was the Vietnam War being a Pacific distraction for the U.S. from, uh, from Europe. And, and, and he, was, he was deeply concerned uh, that, that the major, particularly the major NATO allies, were not investing sufficiently in defense. And you know, we then have the situation where this summer we will mark not only the 75th anniversary of NATO's founding, but also the 10th anniversary of the Wales, Wales Summit, which established 2 percent. Uh, the 2 percent benchmark, which everybody pledged but was not bound to reach. What tools do we have to accelerate progress uh, toward that 2 percent mark? Because you might have read about it in the paper, we're going to have an election uh, in November. And in the event of a political change in the United States, I think this issue could become really quite uh, acute. 
And so what will your message be going into the Washington summit this summer as Secretary General to encourage additional progress? First of all, it is extremely important that uh, European allies and Canada are investing more uh, in defense. Um, and um, and uh, uh, the very clear message from the United States and also the very clear message from uh, uh, President Trump uh, back in yeah, uh, when he was president from 2017 to, 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 to 21, has had an impact. Uh, uh, so things are now changing. Um, um, because you have to remember that when we made the pledge a few years ago at Wales, uh, at the summit in Wales, to spend 2% of GDP on defense, only three allies, the United States, United Kingdom, and Greece, spent 2% or more. Uh, this year, we don't have the final figures, but this year we expect at least half of the allies to uh, meet the 2% target. That's not good enough, but it's enormously much better than uh, when we made the pledge. And those are allies who are not yet at 2%. They are coming very close, most of them, and all have a plan in place to reach 2%. So that's a total different world than where we were uh, just a few years ago. Um, uh, second, I, I think that um, this is partly about spending more, but it's also about uh, realizing that uh, we need to spend together, because that's a great advantage we have compared to any other major power, is that we can get so much out of our investments when we do it together as we do as an alliance. So, so I'm actually quite optimistic uh, when it comes to NATO allies delivering. And, uh, and, uh, and that's my main message to the United States, uh, that, that uh, European allies have, have understood this, uh, uh, the seriousness, and European allies are investing more. Well, I think we can open it up to some audience questions now. Uh, how does this work, Catherine? I'll go down and raise your hand. Thank you very much. I'm Defense Attaché of Poland here in DC, represents the Minister of Defense in the Embassy of Poland. First of all, I'd like to express my admiration for your leadership and the things you have done over the past year for the, the whole NATO. And my question pertains regional plans. We know that the uh, last summer, the allied heads of states and the governments approved the regional plans. So for the first time in our history, we have plans uh, actually the family of plans that feed the purpose of the regional defense of the Euro-Atlantic area. And my question is about executability of these plans. Uh, what is your assessment on that? It pertains mostly the uh, member states to fill these plans with the capabilities, but I believe you have some things to share how long it might take. Thank you very much. Well, these plans are uh, uh, extremely important. We agreed them uh, last uh, year. Uh, we are able to execute our plans. Uh, but of course, uh, the more forces, the more capabilities we have, there is uh, less and less risk. Uh, and, uh, and, uh, and the good news is that, uh, again, because allies are spending more, uh, they are also uh, now uh, delivering uh, the forces, setting up the, uh, the forces and, uh, and, and establishing the readiness we need. Uh, to re reduce the risks uh, we face. So these are ambitious plans, and, uh, and we are delivering on them. 
uh, Sergio de la Pancer. Uh My question is, what is NATO's strategy to defeat Russia, if that is your strategy? And please define defeat, uh, other than as long as it takes. But I have to understand, you mean, the, as a, when it comes to NATO territory, our strategy is to deter Russia from attacking us. Uh, and that has been a successful strategy for 75 years. But maybe you asked me about Ukraine. Yeah, okay. That's, again, a, as a, uh, that's, but that's important, but it's a different issue. And, and, and we, uh, we must not uh, mix those two. When it comes to Ukraine, the strategy is to ensure that Ukraine prevails as a sovereign independent nation. And that Putin realizes that the cost of trying to control Ukraine is too high. Uh, this is partly about liberating territory, and uh, 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 and we have to uh, recognize or acknowledge that the Ukrainians have liberated roughly half of the territory uh, that Russia occupied at the beginning of the war. Of course, we would have liked to see more territory liberated. We would have liked to see uh, the the the. The, the offensive that was launched uh, last year to, uh, to yield more uh, gains. But we need to remember where this whole thing started. Um, at the beginning of the war, most experts believe that, 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 that Ukraine will uh, be controlled by Russia within uh, weeks uh, and, and Kiev within days. That didn't happen. And the, the, the Ukrainians have been able to liberate roughly half of the territory. In addition to that, the Ukrainians have also been able to open a corridor in the Black Sea to push back the Russian Black Sea fleet, which is actually a huge achievement. And they're now able to, try to export grain and other commodities out of the Black Sea. And thirdly, and perhaps most importantly, they are constantly inflicting heavy losses on the Russian armed forces. Russia has lost uh, more than 300,000 casualties, um, thousands of armored vehicles, um, half of their uh, uh, battle tanks, uh, or perhaps even more, uh, and, um, and, uh, and, and hundreds of, uh, of, of aircraft. So Russia is paying a high price uh, because of, of the Ukrainians' determination and courage and because of our military support. Uh, wars are by nature unpredictable, and I can all, I can, no one can tell you exactly how, how this war ends. But what I can tell you is that the likelihood for an end to this war, where Ukraine prevails, increases the more support we give them. And therefore, I welcome that, that European allies have been pushing, and also, of course, uh, the, 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 uh, the support that the United States has provided since the beginning of, the, of, of this war. Because as long as Putin believes that he can win on the battlefield, he will continue. When he realizes that the price he's paying on the battlefield is too high, and that he will not win on the battlefield, he will have to sit down and recognize, agree, negotiate some kind of uh, agreement where Ukraine uh, uh, continues to be a sovereign, independent, democratic nation in, uh, in, uh, in Europe. So, uh, so yeah, the, 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 the strategy is to inflict so high costs on Russia that they uh, accept that they will not control Ukraine. Well, Mr. Secretary General, thank you very much. We are at time, and I know you have a very busy schedule. A little bit of housekeeping, if everyone could remain seated until the NATO party has, has left the auditorium, that would be great. I would like to echo my Polish friends' uh, thanks for your service to NATO, and uh, have a fun out in, out in America. Yeah. Thank you. <laughs> Thank you.